What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Joe Bonamassa here from Nashville, Tennessee. This is live from Nerdville, and my guest is one of the great pillars of the guitar vocal community. You know him from his band, Blackberry Smoke, legendary singer, songwriter, guitarist, Charlie Starr. Thank you very much for being on the program today. It's, it's, it's an honor. You know, we've been friends for a while, but it's an honor to, to have you on the show and geek out a little bit for an hour. Joe, thank you for having me. Those are, those are words I can't live up to. Thank you very much. Well, you know, I, I've been a fan since you guys started, since uh, 2003. And I remember seeing you on a television show, and it was such a breath of fresh air. And every time I listen to, your, to, to, to the music, it's such a breath of fresh air because it, you guys cu- come out and, you, and you, you cut through it like a, like a hot knife through butter. And it's just like, oh, these are guys playing Les Pauls and Marshalls like, and singing and playing killer tunes. What a novel concept that is, you know? <laughs> You know, it, it like you know, it takes you back to when you know that was how it how it worked and how and you know so you know like I said I've been a fan and and since since the, the beginnings of your band I was like I go these guys are going somewhere and it's 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 like really it's really killer to see all the success you guys have had over the last well now guess what almost twenty years well two, twenty years you know it's amazing thank you very much it, uh, it uh, when I look uh, at the the amount of time, 20 years, when you say it like that, it's just mm-hmm. like, wow, I mean, I can't, you know, I feel like I've, I'm only 20. So right. where, did tw- where did 20 years go? It's, that's a crazy idea. Yeah, I, I, I have a 20th anniversary reissue album coming out, and or it'll be out by the time this airs. And at first, it just seemed like a no-brainer. You're like, yeah, make it 20th anniversary. Oh, yeah. cool. Then you think about it. You go... Wow, that's that's a that's a lot of miles in twenty years. Did you? I mean, did when you guys started the band in two thousand? Because I know it came out of uh, you guys were you know were, you had another band called Buffalo Nickel and yeah. with, a, with a different singer and and it, and it came out of that. Did you when you guys said like we're gonna start a band called Blackberry Smoke? We're gonna go out and play some gigs in Atlanta and we'll see how it goes. Did you ever think like that that you'd be here twenty years later? Going, we're at the pinnacle of our careers. We're making the best music. We're playing. You know, we're writing the best songs and playing our asses off. Do you ever think that? I never did. I remember when the when Buffalo Nickel broke up, um, uh, Britt and Richard Turner, the bass player and drummer brothers, uh, we loved playing together. And we were basically that other guy's band right? Um, with really no input, you know, at that right. point. But we loved playing together. It was a thing, you know, that tangible thing yeah. when you when you uh, and, and I had a few songs at that point. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought, well, we can try these. It's different than what we were doing with him. And uh, and we started rehearsing. And uh, but then I was like, I don't I'm not really good at being in a trio, um, right. the power trio. Mm-hmm. Need another guitar player with a high harmony voice. Yeah. And, um, and so my buddy Paul, I've known him since just out of high school. We called him. And to answer your question, though, I thought, well, exactly that. We'll play some of these places around town, the Smith's Old Bar and the Dark Horse Tavern, and mm-hmm. we'll make some demos at Jeff Bacos' studio, and and we'll have some fun, really. Yeah, you know. And uh, I, I I didn't really think uh, much further than that. And then uh, Jesse Dupree from the band Jackal, mm-hmm. uh, he's an old friend of ours, and he heard this two-song demo that we made, and he said, "Do you have any more of those?" 
And I said, no. (laughs) And he said, well, write seven or eight more uh, and maybe pick a cover and let's go make a record. Wow. And it was like, okay, well, I'll try. But kind of we were kids, you know, it feels like it anyway. Um, Yeah. You you know, you know, I noticed when I was when I was coming up, I, I really noticed, like, especially in Atlanta, like you mentioned Smith's Old Bar and there was a place called the Masquerade where you used to yeah. they used to hoist your gear up in this pulley that looked like it could kill people and probably will. Um, yeah. And I remember when it was coming up, I just noticed in the mid-Atlantics from from North Florida to Georgia, the Carolinas, it was a very hyper competitive music scene like everybody could play and there was a lot of bands you know going we're gonna we're gonna start our our group here and branch out but in order to get gigs you had to be good i mean this is and it's still like that i mean do you think growing up in that 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 scene like you know when you guys were playing your first gigs at smith soul bar i'm like you're like going okay we you know what bands did you look up to and go okay that were regional they were going these guys are good and we need to we need to you know stay up with these 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 great artists well um i remember when i got out of high school um and and first started joining cover bands right. uh, and playing bar that was and i was i was living south of atlanta about an hour but driving and crying right uh, they and i thought they were huge well they were yeah. huge to me because mm-hmm. i heard them on the radio every day and um uh, come to find out i mean they were a little more of a regional uh, right. phenomenon at that point um but i mean you know we were learning their in cover bands i was learning their songs and then in 1990 then the black crows of course right uh exploded onto the scene but before that the georgia satellites were the greatest rock and roll band that atlanta ever spawned i mean they were tried and true four on the floor three chords and i don't know if you ever saw them live but they were one of the loudest bands i ever saw it was unbelievable powerful with a les paul jr and a and an esquire and away they went so those were big shoes to fill for georgia rock and roll bands you know you know, I think um, one of the things I did notice about the Georgia Satellite, I did one show with them in the 90s, and thinking back to it, they were super loud, and I liked it because they were super loud, you know? Yeah. Um, and when I hear you guys, I mean, like, there's a sound of volume, and there's a sound of cranking it, and, and what loud rock and roll bands. Do you think, you know, do you think now, like, like to me, like, I see bands, even big acts and stuff like that. And the stage volume is just, it's so quiet and it's gone. And they're like, amps are either they're they're They, they leave them behind it, you know, previous gig and they, and they run a wire or whatever. And you, you hear no stage volume whatsoever. Yeah. And do you think it loses something? Cause, cause this guy does, I, I think the kinetic yeah. energy and put moving air on a stage is, is really valuable. It's powerful. And it, right. it's, I, I had this, discussion with guys in my band before because when we moved to in-ears um we i think some guys in the band were hoping that which our stage volume is not nearly as loud as yours is joe (laughs) but i wish you know i'm when we're moving gear i i can only fit a couple of amps in the in the pack right um uh thanks to you know so so many other guys in the band wanting to bring all their shit too right um but it, it, exactly like you said, um, it, when we made the move to ears, I said, I don't want to sacrifice. I don't want to go to Kemper's 
or yeah. anything like that, because I don't want to sacrifice the excitement that happens on stage is moving the legs of your pants, you know, the right. push in the air. And, and even the people on the on the front row, um, you know, you still got to be there. I, I, we did it. We played a festival uh, a couple of years ago and I saw several newer acts that mm-hmm. there were there were not a live amp anywhere. Right. Um, all ear, all you could hear was the drums if you're standing on the side of the stage. And then lo and behold, Hank Williams Jr. <laughs> I think he headlined that right. day, and he, and it was one of the loudest experiences that I've ever been a part of. And I thought, damn, this is like watching Motorhead, right? And it was it was all him, and he, yeah. I think he was playing like an old PV Mace Love under him. the drum riser, and it was blistering, but it was exciting. You know, I was like, oh my god, this is a concert. Right. And it was side, there's probably side fills, you know, I remember, you know, it, it, uh, one of the loudest things I ever witnessed was an Ozzy Osbourne rehearsal with Zach Wilde. And they were, all the cabinets were on, all the, everything was on. Plus they had the show co wedges in front and they had side fills that were, for us would be plenty of PA for the rooms that we play, but these were side fills and it was, it was exhilarating, you know, and, and. It just, you know, I, I I miss those days. Do you find that you do you find that the in ears help you as a singer, um, like preserve your voice and yeah. and not have to shout over, well, frankly, loud guitar amps. That's it. The the mm-hmm. reason that we even experimented with them in the first place it was back in about 2010, the first time that we went to Europe, mm-hmm. and we were playing a total punk rock club tour uh, with a. Uh, promoter in Belgium and he basically booked all the shows and he rented backline gear and got shirts printed the whole right. he's got a great model but it was 22 shows in a row with no day off right and I kind of was like wait a minute what you know and uh, and it was kind of left up to me like do you want to it's all or nothing you know yeah and I was younger then and said okay I'll give right. it a shot What's the worst that can happen? But uh, I kind of a light bulb came on and was like, you know, one night of horrible monitors in in a punk rock club, that'll be it. I won't be able to finish the tour. Right. So we got them. We got some of the little one size fits all deals. And I hated it, hated it, because who wants to hear themselves that closely, you know, especially playing the guitar. Right. But I, I quickly realized that exactly what you just said. That's the way you save your voice because you're not screaming over stage volume yeah it's um the most i ever did in a row touring europe and it's always there's always that e-word that comes in when you when you talk about endurance tests i don't know why europeans love to book bands all month literally yeah um the 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 most i did was 13 in a row and on the 13th show we were doing this show in germany called rock palast it was a, a legendary almost like the austin city limits of 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 Germany. And I was about six shows in. And again, it's like, you know, it's every night's a different monitor and you're fudging with the EQ to try to at least get some perceived volume and it, whatever. And we're about six shows in and I go, I don't think I'm going to be able to do this. And somehow between the sixth and the eighth show, like this, this, this second wind Kind of like, and you could see it. Maybe I can get through. Maybe I can get through. And I think I was better at the end than I was at the beginning because you had this huge mountain to climb. I mean, you know, were you formally trained as a singer or did you kind of figure out the head voice? Because you have a great, great 
head voice and 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 everything and it's like it's like the, the fundamentals of the singing i you know i hear in your voice and, you, and it's and it's great thank you very much i i, I just you know i i smoke two packs of cigarettes a day up until about five years ago mm-hmm. and i mean you know since 17 years old playing in smoky bars and and learning uh what you can do yeah basically trust trust your body and know okay well i can't hit that note twice in a row you know or (laughs) or whatever yeah the you have the a show the b show and the oh shit show you know (laughs) i can i can sing real good tonight uh you know it's been three in a row and we're just gonna get hopefully we don't have to give them their money back that's that's my c show hopefully i don't have to refunds tell me about you know the, the the question i ask everyone from journalists to guitar players, singers, everybody is. I'm always interested in 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 the host and and the conduit to music. Like like who who, you know, lit the fire, you know, musically for you. And and you know, how did you how did you go from listening to music to going here's a guitar, here's a song, I'm writing, I'm singing, and all of a sudden I want to do this for a living. Like what? How did you? At what age did that that occur? Well, when I was a uh... Uh, a little kid, as far back as I can remember, really, uh, my dad is a bluegrass guy, mm-hmm. and uh, he always played guitar and sang songs, just just as a right. hobby. Yeah. When he would come home from work, we didn't really throw the baseball or throw the football or do anything like that. He played the guitar and sang, yeah. and I loved it, absolutely yes. loved it. And uh, he never, he always had time. If I said, "Hey, Dad, will you sing me a song?" He's, "Yes, I surely will." Mm-hmm. And uh, so I had to. I had to know how to do that. I, I was right. so enthralled with with the 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 act of playing the guitar and singing a song. It just seemed very magical to me. So he started to teach me, you know, G, C, and D, and uh, teaching me some songs. And that was about six years old. Um, he bought me a, a little guitar of my own with a little gut string guitar because right. he didn't want me banging his Martin around, you know. And, right. Um, right. Sounds familiar. Yeah. <laughs> and so I kind of I, I was really excited about that for a little while. And then it, it kind of it didn't die, but it it, it, it kind of the flame died down a little. Mm-hmm. But it was always there. Um, but then when I was 11 years old, it all blew wide open and it, it was a combination of several things. Um, I had friends that knew that I could play some chords on the guitar and that I could sing like the wreck of the old 97. <laughs> right, right. But then I, I heard, it was several things. I, I really heard Led Zeppelin. Mm-hmm. I met an, a friend who was a little older, a couple of years older. He had an electric guitar and he could play Black Sabbath riffs. Right. He could play Iron Man and Paranoid. And I was just like, holy shit, look at that. You know? Right. And my sister... Uh, she's four years older than me. She just started to date and her boyfriend was playing Van Halen's first record in his car. Right. And so all three of those things, and I wasn't really old enough yet to discern between like, I like the Almond Brothers or I like Little Feet or yeah, not, not quite there yet. But those three things, Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath and Van Halen, I was, uh, I, I didn't know which way was up. Yeah. Um, and, and, at the same time, my mom was really into the Beatles, the Stones, and Bob Dylan, and she played that constantly. So that right. was always kind of in the background. So right there around the same time, I, I kind of thought, well, my dad's bluegrass harmony thing, like rolling my sweet baby's arms, is really the right. same thing as honky-tonk women. Right. Honky-tonk women's just louder. Right. You know. 
so it all uh, all that started to kind of make sense to me and i got an electric guitar what do uh, you still have it no it was a height deluxe it was a Moserite copy right and the first the first thing i did was i uh it was it was black i believe and i put electrical tape all over it and split, spray painted it red so that i would have the eddie van halen stripey guitar right oh uh, you know i i remember stripping my first fender with a uh it was a dunlop capo like the one that had the little teeth on it and the little strap yeah, yeah. and i remember i uh, my dad bought it for me it was 275 dollars. this was in the late 80s and i just liked it because it was beat up but i was into i was into like lowell george and lowell had a natural one i go hmm. yeah can't afford a natural one, but I know what I can do. So I took the candy apple red off a 1972 Strat with a, <laughs> and it came off. That's, I, st I still have it. You know, one of the things that I always, you know, I, I always wonder about when it comes to, you know, a band and a, you know, cause a set list and everything. And, and I, you know, I was going through, you know, some of the band acts that you've toured with and some of them I, I have, but some of them I haven't is, you know, you've toured with ZZ Top. Government Mule, Zach Brown, Eric Church, Skinner. Like, what's the thought process that goes into writing those set lists, especially if you're going from playing a gig with ZZ Top, then playing a gig with Eric Church? Are you guys going? Are, are you doing the? Are you doing the Blues Brothers? You know, method going. Fuck it, just do the regular set. Or, or, or do you, or do you, or do you actually go? Okay, listen. You know, this is more of a country skewed audience, and then these are. They're here for the beards, you know, and, uh -huh. and, you know, do you, cause you guys have such a vast catalog, you can pull from anything, you know, plus the cover songs you guys know. And it's like, do you, do you try to play to the audience that's there or do you just go, we're Blackberry Smoke and this is what, this is the show that we're playing and this is the album we're promoting? Well, uh, years ago, I would, I would try and write the set list, not, not, uh specifically for the audience but exactly right. what you said thinking okay yeah. i think i think that the that this material will work better than right. this material um and i kind of started to notice that i was wrong okay um sometimes maybe right. more times than not so i started to lean a little bit more towards the blues brothers uh do the regular set yeah right. there are there are some times though that i'll see and usually it's after the fact we'll be in the middle of a song and i'll if we're still opening for someone mm -hmm. i'll look out and think this is not working they are not digging it and right. usually in europe right funny enough um it seems to me that in because we've you know we uh record um sometimes traditional country songs honky-tonk songs right. you know with yeah. pedal, pedal steel and banjo and and uh, I've looked out into some blank faces sometimes mm -hmm. when we've played those songs. And well, a, a, a label guy from Earache once told me, he's like, they like the rock and roll, buddy. Right. Keep, it, keep it rock and roll. Right. <laughs> but I mean, you can't, you know, you got you to gotta serve yourself too. You know, right. you know, like sometimes you're just like, no, screw it. We're doing this song. I love it. Yeah, I, I, you know, the only time I was ever nervous at a festival, I got booked to play Download, which is traditionally a very hard rock, heavy metal gathering. Yeah. And they booked me to play Download, and, you know, it was one of the very few times that, because of logistics, we had to charter a plane, and we man, we were chartering a plane, and we are flying into Download, and, and for about a, about a minute, you know, 
I actually go, man, this is pretty rock star of me, you know, for the blues guy, you know. And then I got the bill for the plane. I go, never again. And then, <laughs> and, and I was sitting there. I, I labored over a 45-minute set for about two weeks because I'd heard from, from, from people that go, if they don't like you, they throw water bottles at you if you're lucky, you know. Um, and I was like, what do you mean if I'm lucky? And they said, no, no, sometimes they'll pee in the water bottles, then right. throw them at you, right? <laughs> <laughs> and you know what the thing it came up with is like I was like you know what I don't care if I get hit in the head with a water bottle I'm just gonna play and it and it worked out better than if I if I over over thought it you know do you yeah. find yourself like sometimes like either on a record or a live format do you find do you find yourself going man just go with your gut and and trust your instinct and that usually works out the best or do you, do you ever get to the point where you go man I got to stop laboring over this and just put this music out or or you know just do the show and move on yeah. You're exactly right. I think the older I get, um, the less time I'll spend laboring over it or worrying about it. You know, um, well, I mean, that's not entirely true. I still do some laboring and some worrying, right. but but it definitely, um, I start to uh, at some point thought, well, this is out of my control, really. Nothing, yeah. Nothing I can, only thing I can do is you know ply our trade. That's really, and if it's not, if it does if it's not good enough, then. You know, we'll go work at Home Depot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The, la the last time I really bombed on stage was at the Peach Fest. And um, in, 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 uh, in, in, uh, I was in Pennsylvania. Yes. Yeah, Scranton. Yeah. Yes. And I got booked on the Peach Fest. This is about three years ago. And it was our summer tour. And, and, and I, I've learned one thing. You, you can't convince the ones that are just not going to be into your music otherwise. And for some reason, the jam band, the, the jam band community... There's something about what I do. It's just it's not conducive to the kind of music that they want to listen to. You know, it's it's really? not it's and I, and I figured out it's it's not groovy enough. It, it's it's more it's more rigid in English than it is kind of American. You know, you know, and I Blues Brothers that set. I said I go screw it. We're gonna and and I and I just they started to dance at the very beginning and they started to do the the, the hippie and they figured out by the second song. I was no song and dance man, you know, <laughs> and we bombed and I went to Bert home and I go, I'm sorry, man, but I could have told you this before you booked this. But anyway, um, one of the things that I, I I've always been curious in, and I read this is your, your, you guys went fully independent and, and, and my hat's off to you because, you know, like when I, when I was come up in the business to be like, you know, if you say, Oh, I, I'm an independent artist. I own my own label. They're like, Hey, you can't get signed. You know, right. words out. Can't get signed, <laughs> right. You know, <laughs> yeah, and well, that's you've it. been, I mean, even, <laughs> even with your first, I mean, even with the you know, Buffalo Nickel, you guys were on Universal, then, you know, you moved from major labels and, and, and stuff. What, tell, tell the person out there that's gone, that looks up to you and said, you know, man, I really dig what Blackberry Smoke's doing. I love this independent thing. And yeah. I have a group of my own. Tell them the, the advantages and maybe some disadvantages of being an independent and owning your own label and putting out your own music. Well, I only know, um, uh, I don't. I I can't. I can't speak to um, a comparison because mm -hmm. I I really don't. I was such a, a young man during the Universal right. thing, and and I right. had no idea what was going on. Right. Um, I know that um, as far as our experience as independent artists, it, we have complete freedom. Yeah. Which at this point, I don't think I could do it any other way. Because uh, we only answer to ourselves, to each other, right? You right. Know? And we try to police each other with, you know, 
with our ideas and what we right. do, but we found a, a formula that works for us as far as a business model. And we know who we can reach and, you know, past that, it's like, okay, well, it, that would be nice. You right. know, if this record sells more than this amount of copies, that would be fantastic. But, right. Um, we, we feel like after, you know, seven records that we, we can please this amount of people. Um, but it, I, I don't know at this point either if I could take the rejection of having a label, uh, like an A&R guy, shoot a record down. Right. You know, I'd be like, well, you can go jump in that lake right over there. Right. I like it, you know. So I don't I don't know any other way at this point, but it sure is nice to be able to be to to have the freedom to, you know, have the haircut you want to have and write the song you want to write and go record it. Yeah, it's you know, I remember like the 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 the, the label people that I used to deal with and I've always, I, you know, even as a kid and, and nine out of ten of them are not even in the business anymore. They yeah. they. They they came in, caused carnage, broke up bands, signed them, everything, yeah. and then and then just and then just took their bat and ball and went home, you know. Yeah. And then now they're then now they're in New York real estate, you know. What, yeah. what you know, it's it, it's it's funny how that works. Tell me about um, Capricorn Records, and like one of my favorite records that, that you guys have done um, is the one that came out this year. It's it was live from Capricorn Studios, and tell me, you know what the catalog and that label means to you because it i mean even a kid from upstate new york i was very cognizant of of the quality and the bands that came off of that label in particular yeah man well i'll go back a little uh so when i got into my teen years right. uh, and i really started i wanted to play the guitar and i wanted to like really play the guitar right um and i i realized quickly that i was not going to be able to play like eddie van halen uh, mm -hmm. And I was not doomy and scary enough to play like Tony Iommi. But, mm -hmm. you know, growing up in the South, um, Southern rock and roll music was omnipresent. Right. And my ears opened to to what I had been hearing, but would normally maybe be for a child. It's sort of background noise, you know. And all of a sudden, you know, your ear blossoms and you're like, whoa. Yeah. And then like a, a buddy of mine, um, his dad started to see that I was really starting to dig into music. And so he started giving me things, giving me mixtapes, really. You got to have this. Or right. here's a copy of the Allman Brothers at Fillmore East. You got to right. have this. Um, here's Second Helping. You definitely got to have this. And and he was kind of, I can only guess that he must have seen that I was searching, you know. Yeah. Um, and he was a music lover. He saw Little Feet twice in one night at the Fox in Atlanta, Georgia, wow. back in 70, 77, 76, 77. Um, so he gave me Waiting for Columbus. Right. Um, so I, when I started to hear all that stuff and really hear it and and really digest it, a lot of that music was Capricorn music. Yeah. Um, the Marshall Tucker Band and Wet Willie and, of course, the Allman Brothers Band. Um, and so growing up, you know, that close to Macon, um, and then when I got to be older and moved to Atlanta and, and then, and then you're like, well, we got to go to Macon, you know, we got to yeah. go to the cemetery. we got to go to Dwayne's grave. Um, right. we got to back then you would drive past Capricorn and go, that used to be Capricorn studios right there. Right. Know? Um, and it was just in, in shambles at that point. Um, and I was unaware that anything was going on there as far as renovations. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we had put together this summer tour for this year. 
mm-hmm. called Spirit of the South Tour. Right. Um, and we were we were thinking of ways to promote it. And uh, you you and I both know that video is such a powerful tool. Yes. Um, so it was very serendipitous that a friend called and said, hey, you need to come down to Macon and record at Capricorn. They're up and running. And we were like, well, that would be perfect. We can go record some of these songs that are going to be a part of the jam, you know, when we yeah. go on this tour. So we called Jimmy Hall and said, hey, would you come sing a couple of songs? He said, yes. And uh, Marcus Henderson, who plays flute with Marshall Tucker Band currently, right. he came and, and uh, we told him we were going to do Take the Highway. And he played on that. And uh, it, we only had one afternoon to go work. So it was going to be really quickly. So, But at first it was only to capture video. We just wanted to go in there and play and, and obviously record it. But capture, capturing the video was the important part yeah. of the idea. But then it sounded great. Yeah. And and then as soon as it was mixed, I was like, holy cow, that turned out really good. You know, it was it, I mean, we were playing live and we would do a couple of takes. Uh, most of most everything on there is the first take because we right. were, you know, and it's not perfect. We're, you know, I think, if, you know, there's no click and we're going fast and we're having fun. And yeah. um, at the end of the at the end of the day, COVID comes along and we're all out of work. You know, right. And so we started talking about it and, and we were thinking, do you think there are people who might want to buy this, you know, and yeah. make it a product? And then it was like, OK, well, let's do let's release the live at Capricorn Studios EP. And uh, that's how it all came about. Yeah, because, you know, when I when I first heard it, I was like, I mean, I, I, first of all, I, I think it, one of the great versions of Take the Highway, you know, Marshall Tucker band. I was always a Toy Codwell guy. I loved his 335, loved his tone, yeah. you know, and and, you know, one of the, the one of two bands that was able to have hit songs on the radio with lead flute, you yeah. know, Jeff exactly. and Marshall Tucker band. Who would have thought? Right. Who would have thought? We used to have joke about that. That must be the, the their buddy. That's the dealer. And, and right. uh, he plays the flute, so let him come and play. <laughs> yeah, you're like, okay, you know, and but you know, if you take the flute out of that, it, it's not it the sucks. same. Right, yeah, yeah. It's, it's yeah. you know, it's, it's a load bearing flute, is, is they <laughs> <laughs> you know, I actually saw some um when this thing was released, and you know, you can see and hear everyone's opinion at the same time, thanks to social Love. media. Oh, yeah, can't get us. I, I saw some confused people say, I really like that Marshall Tucker band song that they did but uh i don't really understand why the flute is in is in, and i thought well then you obviously have never heard the heard original version Tucker band. yeah yeah i it, the, the thing with social media is and and i'm i'm you know a hot-blooded upstate new york italian and it gets me in trouble okay i've yeah. caused trouble and i understand that and there's some things but i just can't let go you know yeah. there's some statements that are just so out of reality like like if that comment was like i just you know i love the song but this you know the 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 the, the flute shouldn't be there that would have blown my mind and i would have caused trouble how do you <laughs> keep how do you keep such a calm governance on things like that especially now in you know in the era of like social media and and all of this because like you just want to just yeah. My head wants to explode when I see stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. Well, I, I'm I stay away from Facebook. The only thing that I do is right. is Instagram, and uh, right. I think that that was actually a, somebody screenshotted that and sent it to me. So I was a little bit 
a, a little bit uh, removed from the situation. Um, uh, I got it secondhand, but my head did explode because I want to, you know, I want to explain. Right. I want, I, I want I want that person to understand why that statement is so incorrect. But right. And, and you, you know, one of, the, one of the things about social media that I think, you know, and here we are broadcasting on social media. <laughs> Thank you very much. You know, and one of the things is the what I don't people seem to to try to like, I don't know, blow up the balloon you know, on themselves and project some things that they may be feeling on others, you know, like, yeah. like cyberbullying and, and, you know, in a musical sense, you know, where I remember in the nineties, nobody, I didn't care what anybody thought. I just did it, you know? Yeah. And now you're starting to see acts play to that, you know, going, you know, I can't do that. Cause I'm going to, you know, it, 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 do you find it like, you know, like some of the acts, do you think like, like the Allman Brothers, if they were in their formative years coming up with social media, I still think personally they wouldn't give a shit. They were right. like, this is, this is how we play, you know, yeah. and it's that, it's that outlaw mentality. And I think that's why Chris Stapleton does so good because he just doesn't care. He just, yeah. I, it's me, you know. You can't, yeah, you can't you know? care if, if you, I, or you can't care too much, I guess. Um, what was it? Cat uh, Williams, the comedian from Atlanta, he said, right. look on your social media page right now. If you don't have 50 haters, y you're fucking up. Right. Yeah, it's it's you know, it's true. You know, here's, here's a question. And, and would you rather would you rather be loved and hated on the extremes? Love Blackberry Smoke. Can't stand Blackberry Smoke. The, yeah. You know, I'm talking from personal experience. Or be like, be like, oh, they're okay. Right. Yeah. We'll take the extreme. Yeah. Right. Because it means I, you. Yeah. Yeah. Passion, one way or the other. It it, it means that your you, your music is 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 eliciting a reaction, so to speak. Yeah. 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 I did see. Um, I don't. I don't. You know, read a lot of. Uh, comments and things right. like that, uh, just because I like to be happy and I don't want to be bummed out. And I don't, and right. I don't, you know, I don't want to read a, a troll's thoughts. Uh, right. And there, but but from time to time, I do see a few. And I did see one not long ago that said, uh, "This guy was like Blackberry Smoke." He goes, "I'll explain Blackberry Smoke to you. This is a band that was put together in an office by you know a think tank of suits." that we're aiming at a specific demographic that is at a NASCAR race and, a, you know, all of this, all that kind of shit. But he said something that was so good. He goes, their concerts should have pigs on a spit across the front of the stage, <clears throat> um, an open bar on each corner, you know, and the dancing girls in cages mm -hmm. and all this. And I was like, that is, that is brilliant. Well, right. First of all, all of that's untrue, but why didn't we think of that? Right. <laughs> Do you want a job? You want a job? Yeah. Yeah. Hire this man. He's our new yeah. production manager. <laughs> but I thought my wife was, she, she, I, I read it to her. She said, well, God, if, if that were true, wouldn't you guys be way, way, way more successful? Open bar. So, yeah. yeah. There you go. Here's, here's the thing I like to do, especially, especially, you know, like, uh, I like to pick my favorite songs and, and see if they co coincide with your favorites of, of your catalog. Like, okay, I love Pretty Little Lie because okay. it, it explores a very countryside of, of, 
of, of your catalog. And it also has one of those one of those pesky things that people seem to avoid, like the plague. It has a lifting, uplifting chorus. It has a real chorus, you know? And and tell me, I mean, like, like when you're writing, when you're switching gears, because some of your stuff is very heavy, very rip rock. And when you're switching gears, do you... Is it, are you affected by like the kind of guitar you write it on or are you just are you going, hey, I want to write a country-ish song today or are you just going, this came to mind and we're going to cut it? Yeah, well, that one was, that's a B-Bender song. Yeah. Um, and so it kind of lent itself to more of a country kind of thing, maybe, you know? Right. Um, but I think, I don't know, that, that chord progression, um, uh, the E minor to like the the D with the F sharp and then the G. Yeah. Um, it kind of, I don't I don't know I don't think that would have worked in any other uh, with any other kind of feel, you know. Right. Um, I wrote that with a friend Travis Meadows mm-hmm. from Nashville. Great yeah. great great friend. He's from Mississippi actually, but um, he's a written a lot of songs with Travis. We seem to see eye to eye. But I don't know what he was thinking when we were sitting there that day. But I was feeling it as a is that kind of tempo that straight ahead and yeah, it sounds like a like a uh, like a country song it's you know it, it's a great song it's one of my favorites another one i wanted to mention and you know i think it's probably one of the most underrated breakup songs in history and payback's a bitch because ah. because a lot of people try to write songs in the spirit of saying payback's a bitch you guys just you guys just cut to the chase and go here's the song and payback's a bitch. And it also, to me, your vocal delivery on that song, very, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I hear a lot of like Ian Hunter, Mata Hoopals, that snarl, you know, that, that you know, it's like, it's it's contrarian by nature and you're, you know, it's like payback's a bitch. And it's the way you deliver it. Like, like, tell me when you wrote that, was, was that, was that based on like a true event? And like, I'm going to, uh, spite is a great motivator, you know? Yes. Well, I saw a good friend of mine uh, it was a true story. Mm-hmm. I saw him go through a horrific time uh, with a very, very spiteful girlfriend. Right. And it was just ripping him to pieces. Yeah. And she just would not let up. And so, and it was one of those things that that I was really just observing. Like, wow, what's going to happen next? Oh, what a shame. Look what's going on. Oh, look what he just did. Oh, look what she just did. And so nice. I, I, that was the, the impetus. Um, the, the embryo came, the embryo came from watching them implode and then explode and um, yeah and I thought oh there's going to be some revenge from one yeah. side or the other right because it just gets nastier and nastier so yeah that's where that came from it's it's that it's that nasty game of one upmanship on the downward spiral you know and it's just yeah. like it's like yeah, I've had a few like that, but I, I just love that because, you know, a lot of times when I when I put on a record, I, I like I look at titles. You know, I, I love it's some a title hits you you're like, man, this is going to be good. And you can almost call it by the title. And I go, well, I said, payback's a bitch. I go, this is going to be this has got to be inspired by true events. And, it, and it's and it, to me, it's like Southern Rock meets Mata Hoople. And I, and I, 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 I love that kind of take on it. Oh, My other you. one is is um, and I saw you guys kill it on uh, uh, Colbert and you had a red 335 and the song is called Waiting for Thunder Yeah, and it's a big riff played with bad intentions and it was the first time 
it was like it, it's to me like it's the first time I heard the Levon Helm influence front and center in your voice. You know, and and there's there's a textural thing, and it's a similarity. It's not like it sounds, you know, it's not, but it it's it was I just it blew me away. And I I remember I saw it again on the rerun. I was like, oh great, I, I remember this. And I, I literally wrote the name of the song down because it, it just it floored me. It's one it's my favorite song you guys have done, and it's just it's just it's just killer stuff. Thank you very much, and thank you for the the Levon mention. I uh, couldn't love couldn't love Levon more, man. Wow. Yeah. What a what a musician! What a voice! With a what voice, a drummer. Yeah, the whole package. Yeah. Well, that that song, um, "Waiting for the Thunder," we, um, it was. Um, I wrote that um, right as um, Donald Trump got elected, mm-hmm. and it was. It's not a. It's not a pro-Trump or anti-Trump song. It right. basically, if you if you really dissect the lyrics it's like well it's your turn mm-hmm. good luck right and it was kind of my dad would call it a the world is going to hell song right because um, really it's just like how much and that was you know um we just thought that it was a scary world then <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> so but thank you i love that song i never get tired of playing it and i get stuck out there naked all by myself um, I don't even I don't know why I ever thought that was a good idea to have to sing a cappella that many times in one song. Uh, but there are nights where I'm like, oh, boy, speaking of the oh shit nights. Uh, yeah. Get, oh, oh, boy, here we go. I'm all by myself. I, well, I mean, you, you're popular as a sort. So, you know, it, it, it's it, I would imagine it's a big song in your catalog. You, you can do the old you can do the old. Uh, trick where you, <laughs> you, do you, you guys yeah. sing. <laughs> yeah. I remember watching a gig one time at a festival and it was a very well-known rock band and the singer was, was struggling, you know, and he, he did the, he, he masterfully without, without anybody thinking anything otherwise, let the audience sing the entire night. Oh yeah. And it was like, it was like, Hey, you sing it. And then, you're going to take this one and you know yeah. verse after verse chorus you know these were big choruses that everybody would sing along anyway i just yeah. go oh man i better get writing tell me very, um very smart all right so it's only taking me 45 minutes to to get into the final subject of vintage guitars yes okay now vintage guitars i know you from those that that black Les Paul Jr. And you're 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 a Gibson guy, junior guy, and everything. And and I was reading about that guitar. It used to belong to the guitar player at Georgia Satellites. Am I correct? Yeah, Rick Richards. And you paid a whopping sum of uh, six hundred and fifty dollars. Do you miss those days when when stuff like that was that cheap, where you could just go through a bunch and go, this one worked, get rid of that? You know, I mean, you started collecting early. You started ninety in the nineties. Well, that was the first one. That was 93. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't, I didn't go looking for it. Um, I, I just moved to Atlanta and just started to play in uh, a local band. Right. And, and just starting to meet people who would become lifelong friends. And one of my lifelong friends worked at a place called Clark Music in Atlanta. Did you ever go there? It was down I on. So. Yeah. They call it, in, here in Georgia, we call it Ponce de Leon Avenue. Right, right. <laughs> but. It's it's uh it's been closed for a long time now, but 
it was one of the cooler little mom and pop music stores and they always had some thanks to my buddy ted who i'm uh talking about he worked there and and um he always had something cool and so i went in there one day and he said hey man and at that point i was playing a uh um a white les paul custom mm -hmm. an 80s one that had the flip out tuning keys bb loved those man i watched him so many times he'd break uh -huh. a string and he just yeah <laughs> they're great well, so he said um he said, I got a guitar that you need. And I said, you do? And he said, yeah, come over here. So I go over and it was on consignment and it hadn't belonged to Rick Richards in a long time. It made its right. way around a few other Atlanta guitar players. Yeah. It had a, had a Bigsby on it at that, at that point, a Bigsby and a tortoiseshell pit guard. But I thought, Oh, that looks, that looks pretty cool. And he pulled it down and it was black. Somebody painted it black in, I think in the late seventies. Right. Um, but I, I strummed a G chord and was like, oh, right. and uh, it's a special one. It's just got a thing. It's really loud acoustically. Yes. Um, the neck is just destroyed on the backside of it, uh, but it just feels right. And so I said, well, how much, you know? <laughs> and he's like, I'll take, um, well, we're, we're asking 650 for it, but I'll take that white guitar you've got and an, an X amount of dollars. And I was like, deal. So right. I got it. And I did ask him, though. Or no, I didn't ask. He told me, he said, I'm going to I'm going to take this Bigsby off uh, if you don't mind, because you don't want that. Right. And uh, I was like, you're right. I don't want that. Yeah. And so he had an old Leo Kwan badass bridge laying around in a box of parts in the back. And he put that on and I've had that guitar ever since. And I've, so that was that was one. That was the first vintage guitar. Um and I got the bug a little bit right then, and I bought a 72 Tele with a Bigsby, also right. um, a Rosewood neck Tele. Um, and uh, it it was a dog. And yeah. even, at, even at 20 years old, I knew it was a dog. And I was like, this yeah. one sucks. So I sold it, and I didn't buy another vintage guitar for a long time because I uh, couldn't afford it. Right. But, you know, because even then, like looking at that, I was like, God, $650, that's all the money in the world to me. I don't right. have to. I'll have to go get another job. job second right. Job. <laughs> right. But, you uh, know, Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no. You know, one of the things about those, those, those seventies, early, late sixties, early 70s, those pickups were, were so bright. Yeah. And, and it was like, it, it's like the worst feedback you've ever heard from a microphone. Only it's coming out of your guitar. As soon as you get past a certain, I mean, it's, it, it's, you know, it's, it's very, it's very apparent upon yeah. getting it up to volume. And, so what was the, when you got back in it, when you started making, you know, some money and you got back into to old stuff, like, do you, do you gravitate towards um, stuff that you can apply in a practical application in, in a sense that like, oh, I, I need one of these and I need one of these as a tool or do you go, man, that's, that's pretty damn clean. I'm going to just stick this under the bed and tell further notice. A little of both, I think. Right. Um, well, when I, I started to, uh, I started to trade first later and traded my way into another junior here and there and another telecaster here and there. Um, and then I started to collect, you know, and I've always been drawn to P90s. It just, it just ever since I bought that guitar, um, I just am drawn to those guitars. There's just something about the tonality of them that I really like. And I, I've had this conversation so many times with people about a single pickup guitar Right. There's something about the relationship of the, the pickup and the wood and the strings. There's something a little different. It doesn't have a pickup in 
the neck position that's robbing the magnetism of the right the, you know what i mean um, yeah i don't know I, whether that's true or not i i believe it um i've had some a couple of les paul specials that couldn't stand up to a to the same year junior you know um yeah. i don't know but um but i will i've i've got a few things that just like you said i thought i gotta have this thing look at it it's right. just so damn cool and beautiful right. i'm probably never going to use it but i gotta have it okay um somebody talked me out of it okay nobody's trying all right here we go yeah it's it, you're surrounded by enablers what's um exactly. what's the guitar you wish you bought uh, that you passed on that that um that you you went retroactively oh man i should i should have grabbed that when i had the chance oh so many mm -hmm. um well, I just slept just for a second the other day, and our buddy in Texas bought this really great uh, Epiphone Coronet, which I, I, you know Peter Stroud yeah, yeah. from Atlanta. Peter and I were talking about coronets one day mm -hmm. because a friend of ours has one of Steve Marriott's coronets. Right. And um, he said, you know what, though? At the end of the day, do you grab that guitar instead of a Les Paul Jr.? I said, do you, no, I don't ever. Right. You're exactly right. I, I never do. I never would. Um, yeah. I mean, who knows? I don't know. I, 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 if I find the right Dwight, because I'm such a Marriott freak, you know, yeah. I'll, I'll buy one. But, but I know that's just, that is just, that is ticking the other guy's box. That's the collector Joe, you know, the, yeah. the, you know, the, the practical stuff is, you know, like the stuff I use every day is like refretted, you know, yeah. and, and stuff that like, you know, I don't go out and chisel into them, but if they're like, if, if a, the black art telly comes free with a humbucker, I'm leaving it in there. Cause it's like, yeah, you know, it's killer. Yeah. Um, what, what was the guitar you bought that you immediately regretted? Um, I got a few of those too. I'm trying to think of the most recent. Um, I bought that. You can't see it, but it's over here on the wall. It's a 1946 ES 300. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't regret it. I just I'm not um, I'm not a good jazz guitarist. I wish right. that I were. I really that's a that's a um, that's a mode that I would love to be uh, a little more adept at or in. Yeah. And I need help. I, I, my brain doesn't go those places musically, you know. And um, I look at that guitar from time to time and think, why did I buy that guitar? Because, you know, it really does one thing. I read about it um, later that two years later or three years later, the cutaway electric Spanish guitar was introduced. Right. And those guitars were forgotten. Right. And it was like, oh, boy, I can get up here now. I don't need that one. Right. And I don't know. I see two guitars of the same ilk right behind you above your mantle. Yeah, this is part of the, I call it the easy to buy, hard to sell collection. <laughs> exactly. These are easy to, get, easy to get yeah. into this. Yeah. This, is, this is an L30, and the only reason why I bought it is because somebody in the 50s put his name on there, and his name was Boots. Ah. And well, I'm, I, I love folk art. I love the yeah. folk art. And then this is, a, this is actually kind of a rare guitar, but it falls under the same category. This is an ES250. Okay. So is the upmarket version of the 150. I don't know. I think it's a bigger body as well. 
but somebody put a very cool pinup Western girl on on the body. So it, the way I looked at it was it was two thousand dollars for the sticker, one dollar for the for the guitar. So it's a two thousand dollar sticker. Yeah, and, it looks, and they look good on the wall, you know. Fantastic. You know, and that's you know that's that, that's what it is. It's it, you never. You know, I have guitars that I I, I bought. And I go, oh my God! You know, you know, you know, when you're on the road and it's raging and you're bored and it's like, oh God! And then I have a garage sale and I get rid of it. And you know, and that's that's it. Tell me about like, you know, I love your acoustic guitar playing, and I see one behind you. You know, oh. and you know, I have a hard time. I always tell people I'm an electric guitar player. I started on electric. I play electric. I love I love amps. I love loud. And acoustic is just not loud enough, and they're hard to play. You know, how do you, you know, how do you, uh, what's your relationship with acoustic? Do you, do you, do you, is it a different discipline, or do you apply the same kind of techniques that you have on the electric, only, you know, with a, a box with a, a round hole in it? Um, how do you approach it? I think it's a completely different discipline. Mm -hmm. That's a great way to put it. Um, my hands don't go to the same places um, on the two different instruments. Um, I, I wish that I were a better flat picker, um, a la Clarence White, Tony Rice. I'm fascinated with that kind of thing. Um, yeah. But it's so difficult. It's so hard. And I can play a couple of little, uh, uh, I have a couple of little, you know, throwaway licks that I always will go to. But, but, but what got me uh, where I usually go um, is, uh, is Mississippi John Hurt stuff. Yeah. Um, I, my dad had a friend who would come over and jam with him and uh, and they would play bluegrass songs. And when it would get quiet, that man would start to play the finger picking Piedmont stuff. And right. I was floored with that. And I uh, I would go and bug him and say, how do you do that? And this is I was a uh, teenager and, um, you know, he, he's in like an, an old Alabama guy. And he's like, right. well, I can't tell you how to do it. You You just got to watch me, you know. Right. And uh, I would try and try. And he actually did sort of like later I saw or heard the Doc Watson recording where he says, I first I started doing this and he's doing his thumb back and forth, you know, on the yeah. E string and the D string. Bum, dum, bum, dum, and then add the melody. And it literally was that it was do that until you can slowly start to add, you know, the, the yeah. melody in. And I've, I always thought that Mississippi John Hurt was a good place to start because his is a, way more accessible than than Merle Travis. You know, um, yes. but I I'll never tire of that. The sound of that. It's just mm -hmm. so the way it rolls. And I asked that man once, I said, how do you figure that John Hurt? Um, he's just the, the best example I can think of being from rural Mississippi. How did he come to play that way? Because it really is a sophisticated way to play the guitar. It's not it's not uh, pedestrian at all. You know. Right. And he said, I think that him and like some of those other guys were hearing a player piano on a riverboat. It's got that same stride kind of. Right. That, that's a that's a strange theory. But I thought, well, that makes sense. I usually, you know, I usually find that that necessity is the mother of invention. You know, meaning yeah. like I got a gig, I got to sound like a band, but I can't afford a band. So I'm going to come up with this thing and I'm going to, you know. Yeah, and, and and it's it's as simple as that, and then you start developing a style, and then it just becomes then it's just written into history. Um, finally, um, one of the things that uh, I I you, you touched on was 
growing up in the South, you had you had blues, country music, Southern rock, um, you know, that that was just around, you know, what was the first blues thing that you heard um, that that goes, I, I'd like to I'd like to amalgamate this into the Zeppelin and 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 the, the the bluegrass stuff that I was learning. What was the what was the first thing that really uh, floored you as a as a as a as a guitar player, both either on electric or acoustic? Well, um, I obviously you know learned about blues from British rock and roll. Yeah. Um, um, thanks to the Stones and Led Zeppelin and Eric Clapton and uh, and the like, but. Um, there was a little record store. I lived right on the, uh, grew up right on the state line uh, separating Alabama and Georgia. And uh, right across the state line in the center of town in Georgia was a little record store called Nader's Music. Mm-hmm. And I would go in there and they would let me play electric guitars, uh, cheap electric guitars they had for sale through like a little gorilla amp. Yeah. And right. it's two brothers that owned it. And um, they were really cool to me. They were really nice. And that was a predominantly black neighborhood. Um, and so their record or their music selection was mostly R and B and, um, hip hop was not a thing yet, right. um, but it was mostly, um, R and B and disco and funk and, but, and a lot of blues. Um, and I, and they still had records. Right. Uh, and I, I was, I was in there one day and, um, that, uh, one of the brothers would teach me a lot about it. Talked to me a lot about music. That is, and he would play the records and he was playing a record one day and it really knocked me out. And I was like, what is that? Because it was a sound that I was familiar with um, uh, from like the Stones at that point, from what my mom yeah. would have been playing, like Midnight Rambler or something. Yeah. Um, but it was Mississippi Fred McDowell. Right. Um, and it was it had. Um, Train I Ride and Gravel Road Blues and Poor Boy Long Way From Home. And right. I bought it and I still have it. Wow. I think I paid I think I paid five dollars for it. But I, I remember that was sort of an aha moment. I didn't even know what I was ahaing about. It just it was so guttural and real and it's just him and a guitar, you know. Right. It sounds to me that on that record like he was playing a resonator guitar. Um yeah. you know, uh, but it, and with a bunch of reverb. Um, but it was great. But that man also taught me at a later time, like he put a record on a 78 and it was Jimmy Rogers. Right. The, the yodeling Greatman. Right. And, uh, and you know, some of those recordings, he has some accompaniment. There'll be, um, a dobro, sometimes a fiddle. And, uh, I was like, we started to talk about it. Like, I was like, that sounds like it was recorded at the same time, you know, as these other guys, Robert Johnson and, Sun house and he's like well it was maybe a little before you know but it started to dawn on me then i'm like wow and also these guys recorded a lot of the same songs right a lot of the of the old white string bands were recording sitting on top of the world just like mm-hmm. the mississippi sheiks you know right it was all just so intertwined and that that fascinated me do you i have a theory like because when I listen to Robert Johnson, his voice is so high, range-wise. Yeah. And then you listen to, like, you know, you listen to those, those songs, like, even Jimmy Rogers, which is the same kind of production, and, and or which is directed disc. And, you know, I started to think about it. And 
they were plugging in, you know, like the, 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 the recordings that Robert Johnson did in Dallas. They did it in a hotel or, or, or some building, and they just plugged the machine into an outlet yeah. that could have had varying voltage and varying speed. And sometimes yeah. maybe it went down faster than it was actually, you know, and uh-huh. that's why you get like these, you're trying to tune up to it. You're like, wow, this is like in B flat and a half or, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know C negative. You know, yeah. and, it, and it's like, you're like, I, I always, if I had a time machine, I would always say, you know, I go back and see free. I'd stop by and see free in their prime. And I go back and, and try to catch an early, you know, one of the founding fathers in a live saying, just to hear what their actual voice sounded yeah. like. Because all we have are those, those, those Columbia recordings and, right. and, and like, Theoretical, and we can wrap up. Is time machine gig? You have two stops. Which, which, where, where, where are you stopping? Well, I got to see the brothers with Dwayne. Right. Um, God, two is not enough. I've always wanted to. You know, there. I wish that there were uh, that video existed of Elmore James. Right. Because um, to to my ears, it sounds like he had the wildest Chicago band. Um, mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Nothing, not 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 meaning that Wolf and Muddy didn't have great bands, but I, I want to see Elmore's band. Yeah, it's a, it's. I think you know, and I think part of the the, the thing that we always like, admire, worship, love is the fact that there's the mystique that's still around it, which is not anymore. You know, it's like social media is kind of okay. Well, I know what, I know what they did today. You know, it's yeah. like you know. I, I've been I've been trying to put out a disinformation campaign, doing, yeah. doing posts, saying people go, oh, I I see you're in uh, wherever, are you doing this? And I'm like, that was three days ago. I took the picture three days ago. It's a disinf. Yeah. And like I'm going all CIA. Yeah, Charlie, I can't thank you enough, man. Like I, I I'm I'm honored you're on the program. I love your music. I love your voice. Everything, and I'm honored to be your friend. And uh, thank you, thank you for being here. Same to you a thousand times, Joe. Thank, oh, thank man. you so much, man. The legendary Charlie Star, ladies and gentlemen. This has been live from Nerdville. Until next time, ladies and gentlemen, we'll see you soon.